Marquette University. Be the difference. Welcome to Illuminating Intellect, a podcast series about the personalities and pursuits of Marquette University faculty members. I'm your host, Dan Myers, the provost of Marquette University. And joining me today, we have Dr. Bob Fox, Professor Emeritus in Counseling Psychology in the College of Education and the founder of the Behavioral Clinic at Penfield Children's Center. Dr. Fox is a pioneer in the field of pediatric mental health and intervening with children experiencing trauma as early as one year of age. He has also partnered with Penfield for the past 15 years to work directly in the community. Bob and I had a rich conversation about the importance of trauma-informed care, how he isn't slowing down in his retirement, and advice that all parents should know. He's an example of a faculty member who is truly being the difference in the Marquette neighborhood and beyond. And now, here's my discussion with Dr. Bob Fox. Are you rolling already, Tim? I am. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you are rolling. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We just and we just let it roll because it's just we want it to be conversational. So, um, but the uh, I remember when you got the award was that last year or the year before I can't remember. Right. Yeah, and uh, when you got that award and you were talking about your research, it was just so impressive to me how um, you know just intrinsically motivated you are toward the work you do and the. The, the sort of really loving feel that you have toward the kids that you work with. And you you talked about your grandkids at that point. And, and I remember thinking uh, how lovely it was that you, that those two parts were really integrated into to who you are. So, so, so that was just a really nice, nice part of that. Have you thought about how those different pieces, your family life and your work are connected together? Yeah, actually, um, the whole thing started when we started having our own family, and uh, we were living in Columbus, Ohio at the time, and uh, realized pretty quickly on that we didn't know what we were doing, <laughs> <laughs> raising our daughter, and then we had two sons after that, and that was back in the late 70s, and there was very little research on on little kids, you know, how you raise them. There's a lot on adolescents and stuff, but nothing on little kids, so... I decided then that even though I had done a lot of work with people with developmental disabilities, that um, I was going to switch and start to develop that area. And so it was a little bit selfish <laughs> to figure out what we need to know about what's best about raising little kids. And then it developed into a program. And then I moved to Marquette in 82 and just continued it. And uh, and it's it's really gratifying now to see our kids raising their kids the way that uh, we think results in the best outcomes for kids. So, so Marquette, through your work, has a really unique relationship that ties research and community engagement together here. Can you tell us a little bit about that program and how it's developed over time? Sure. Um, one of the things I think uh, I know our dean, Hank, always talks about is how we're a nice example of teaching research and service. Um, so in 2003, we developed a behavior clinic, which was a partnership between Marquette and Penfield Children's Center, which serves kids 
zero to three, so very young kids, and many of them have a delay of some sort. Um, but they didn't have any mental health components, so they have OT and PT and speech and those folks. But they often found that with kids that had significant behavior issues or emotional problems, they couldn't do their therapies because the kids wouldn't cooperate. Mm. So we joined forces, started a mental health clinic there, and it grew and grew. And uh, the nice thing is we, you know, about 85, 95% of the population lives in poverty. A lot of single moms. And it's very difficult for them to get any support for their kids. So we're able to get out there, um, and we found that the the trick was not developing a traditional mental health clinic where people come in to see you in your office, but actually going into their homes and uh, providing the services. And then uh, taking along graduate students to learn the, the process. And pretty soon, over about a year period, graduate students are providing the service. I think we've done 10 dissertations on the data we've collected there. So we're, we're doing action-oriented research. We're uh, providing service direct to the community, and we're training our students. So I think it's a it's a really a neat model. It's worked out really well. That's terrific. So it, it and so the graduate students they're learning how to do this, and they're doing research that's supporting their academic programs, and then they they graduate. and And have you seen them go out and do this kind of work? Or are they becoming academics who are following in your footsteps with research? What happens to the our students after they leave us? Well, both. Uh, some become uh, academics. You know, I have a student at the University of Southern Mississippi. I have one locally here at Wisconsin Lutheran College. And so they're, they're continuing that work. I also have a number that are in pediatric units and hospitals that are continuing this kind of work with families. So they are, they're really strongly grounded, and I think that helped them obtain these positions because they're offering something that's kind of unique. Most universities don't really pay much attention, especially in mental health, to kids under five. It just hasn't caught on yet. They don't see the value of it yet. But I think that's going to change over the next 15 or I hope it does over the next 15 or 20 years. But our students, uh, yeah, they, uh, the 10 that have been there are all doing this kind of work. It's interesting that that people haven't focused as much on the early childhood experience. It seems like we would intuit that what happens in those years is so incredibly important because whatever it is, whatever trajectory it puts you on, good or bad, I mean, that's just going to expand throughout your your life. Uh, why do you think it is that, that people haven't paid more attention to that age group? Well, you're right. We know that probably out of... 10 kids born, one or two are going to have moderate behavior problems. And if they're not addressed through some formal intervention, they're going to continue to have those. About half of them are going to have them through school years, and they get much more difficult. There's just been a, a tradition in this country to serve adults with mental health issues first, you know, and then it's gotten down to kind of school-age kids, and it's slowly filtering down. But prevention kind of programs are harder to sell. Um, but to give you an example... We got some nice funding through SAMHSA's uh, National Child Traumatic Stress Network. Uh, back in the early, I guess, 2000s, 2005, they were funding about four programs. Now they're funding about 90. Mm -hmm. So this whole issue of addressing kids and picking up on issues like trauma and, and the, the things that kids are exposed to, it's starting to catch on, and people are starting to see the value of it. But I think we have a ways to go. You know, we, we talked to several providers in the community. They will not see a child under four years of age. So, and our average children are about 2.5 years of age. So, 
It's interesting. I mean, I imagine some of it's tied up in the stereotypes we have about what therapy might look like or something, you know, and people have a, a notion from TV or movies or something that somebody's laying on a couch and someone's sitting there with a pad doing some sort of Freudian psychoanalysis or something. And and that's not something that you could do with a three-year-old, obviously. So tell us, what does a, what does a therapeutic intervention look like for a, uh, for a child of that age? Yeah, well... You know, it, the first thing I think uh, that's important to recognize is you're right. It's not traditional psychotherapy. It's, um, so 90% of our work are with the caregivers. So we always have the caregiver, primary caregiver and the child present. And it's a matter of showing them the appropriate way to handle issues that come up with their child, uh, whether it's um, complimenting them for doing something well or setting a consequence if they're getting aggressive with their younger sibling or something. But it's very hands-on. So we'll... Uh, We'll explain what we want the parent to do and why it works. And it's based on strong theory. It's not just something we came up with. And then, um, and then we'll show them how to do it. You know, we actually model it for them. And then they do it so that we can provide them immediate feedback because that's, that's the key. Because when you have parents that aren't as well educated um, and are lower income oftentimes, if you sit in an office and tell them to do something, by the time they get home, what they do isn't exactly what you had in mind. But when you're right there on the spot, you can make that those little suggestions that, that are going to make all the difference. So it's, I would say 90% of the work is with the parent first. That's interesting. So uh, when I uh, – I was just talking to someone about this kind of situation. They had been in an airport and had observed three or four different toddlers, basically, in the environment doing <laughs> different kinds of things, ranging from zoning out to, you know, rep- repeatedly say, I want to push that button, I want to push that button, whatever it is, or running around in a circle. And and, and the, the parental interventions were so varied. And, you know, it really seems like that's it's such an important condition of this. Uh, I, and I hadn't thought of that, but that's that's really that's really a big part of it. So it's it's really you're, you're training the parents. That's exactly right. And we, we've known we've known for 50 years that if you have a parent that tends to be permissive and give in, or a parent that's too rigid and disciplinarian. If you look at these kids when they become adolescents, they don't do as well. They don't do as well academically, as well socially, emotionally. But if you have a parent who can find that balance of being positive, but also being not afraid to set some limits, it's called authoritarian. It's a you know, big fancy word, but basically that's going to produce the best outcomes. And that balance requires some pretty good judgment on the part of parents. And today you have a lot of parents that are, you know, two parents are working and they get home and they, you know, they feel bad about leaving their kid in daycare and stuff. And and then they end up giving their kids too much and uh, kids develop problems and uh, and then they end up with difficulties as the kids enter school. So it's complex, but uh, we boil it down so that people can be very successful. Well, that's a great skill to give folks in uh you know, I, I think even you know, in a world where, um, you, you, where you, where parents were with their kids more, the mom was uh, traditionally. You still wouldn't necessarily know to do these things and how what how to get to the right balance. It's also interesting that you go out to their environment, and you already mentioned that, but um, because you know, bringing people in and doing it in a different kind of environment that's foreign in some ways to both the parent and the student, and it's antiseptic in some ways. In, in the real challenges of the things that distract kids and whatever it is, the the things that are in their real environment, 
really matter, right? So that that's part of the context of making this work. Yeah, and this is, I would say, even more so for people that live in poverty because uh, you walk into a home and you may find uh, 10 or 12 people living there. Some are friends, some are related. You might have a drug house across the street. You might have drive-by shootings. You may have domestic violence. I mean, there's all of these little triggers that um, little kids just can't cope with. And so they either shut down or have some pretty traumatic responses. So getting in there and seeing the world from the kids' perspective, what's it like living here, gives us a a whole wealth of information for how to develop a treatment plan that's going to work for that kid in that setting at this time. Yes, it's interesting. So, so much of this is about the context around the kids. And I've always appreciated that a lot because my kids went to Montessori schools when they were young, uh, when they were early childhood and all the way through sixth grade. And so much of that mindset in Montessori is about preparing the environment in the right way for the kids. And that means the adults that are around them and it means the, the physical stuff. And so really appreciating that and how it's going to uh, provided environment for the kids, good good things and bad things in the environment is just absolutely critical to us being able to track kids towards good, good behaviors and good habits. Yeah, I think without that context and without uh, understanding what that child is exposed to every day, you're just missing a big piece of, uh, of their lives. And we've just found that, um, you know, what will work in one setting, it's not going to work in the next setting. And we have some parents that... Uh, frankly, have kind of given up. They have some tough kids. You know, two- and three-year-olds can be tough, even though they're small. Um, some parents, by the time they we reach them, they're, they've just given up. And, uh, you know, we call that neglect. Um, but we can, once in a while, get them back on track and get them liking their kid again and having fun with their kids again. But you have to do it where the natural environment is, I think. And uh, that also is a barrier for many providers in the community because they're not going to want to be going out to homes. They're going to want to have people coming to them. It's much more efficient. Insurance companies like it better. You know, you can provide more services. So this is a little bit more of an expensive, time-consuming model, but I think it's more effective. Yeah. So in the long run, it's actually it's actually efficient because, you know, you're, you're not you're having an intervention that works as opposed to one that's less effective and, you know, it's more likely to persist uh, in their behavior and so forth. So in, in in the end, sometimes we need to train ourselves to look further down the road, I think, when it comes to these interventions. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And, and the, the nice thing is our outcomes, we've done a lot of uh, fancy randomized controlled trials and stuff like that, which is unheard of when you're working with people in poverty because you have such a high attrition rate. You know, people fall apart and that kind of hurts your research. So we're one of the few places in the country that actually does studies with low-income families and this kind of work. And uh, our outcomes show um, kids' behaviors reduce, parenting behaviors change, parents' expectations change. And we did one study where we actually tracked families for a year and found that the gains were maintained for a year. And that that was tough to find these families. You know, that's always a challenge, but uh, we were able to do that. So the outcomes have been published in, you know, all the best journals, and it's been very well received. And currently what we're doing is training community professionals to do what we do. So we just finished training 16 community professionals to do our kind of work. And so we do a two-day kind of a training seminar, and then I do 12 monthly consultation sessions with them where they call in with questions and issues that come up when they're doing our program. 
so we can get them certified and you know serve more families by having a more people trained that's great i mean you know, spreading it further out is you know now you've got something that works and getting it adopted more widely is, is another is another challenge we always face that with our research because it's uh we, we find answers sometimes, and then it's hard to actually get them to get put into use in the real world. I'm interested in another thing that you sort of hinted at, which is um, you were talking about uh, learning how to raise your own kids and now watching your kids raise their kids. And it, and it brings up this kind of intergenerational transmission of parenting. You, you must see that in both positive and negative ways in the work that you do. Yeah, we've noticed that more, I think, in the last couple of generations than we had before, if you look way back in terms of research. Um, today, what we're seeing is that some of the, the parents that um, we're working with were raised in situations that uh, were not the best. Uh, single parents, you know, low income, never enough food, never enough resources. And they pretty much model the yelling and the screaming and the hollering and the spanking and the whooping and things like that, that that they were raised in because that's what they know. So it's always a challenge to kind of get them to kind of let's move in a new direction, not do what was done to you because you know how well that worked. Let's go in this other direction for your kids. And, and when we get them to buy in and we can get them to buy in, if we can get them to buy in by three sessions, then we got them and they're, they're on board with us. Do you get a resistance from people that say sort of thing, well, that's the way I was raised, and so, and I turned out okay? Do you, do you get that kind of thing sometimes? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's one of the more difficult things to change when you have these sort of ingrained attitudes. Uh, but then the, we, we tell them, is, how's it working for you? And how's your kid doing? And your child's been kicked out of three daycares now. There must be something wrong with what's happening here. So I think if we try, let's let's try some small steps. See if they work. And the beauty of working with young kids, like kids under five, is you can literally see change in three or four weeks. Mm. And they see it. And then they go, oh, and so it's what I'm doing that led to that change. And we're going, yeah, it sure is. So let's keep going. And then we got them. Now, we don't get them all. You know, some just drop out for a variety of reasons. But we get we get more than we lose. And in these people's lives, and especially I mean, if they're in the daycare, there's other adults in their world that are, in essence, are co-parenting in a sense. With Is that something that you address, too, is how they uh, forge a partnership with the other adults in the kid's life to, to have some consistency about the kind of intervention you're doing? You know, we'd love to do that, and we tried um, working with preschools, working with daycare teachers. Um, but unless you really establish a relationship with a school or something, um, it's very difficult to get teachers to change kind of their style of doing things for kids. And so what we've decided to adopt is a different kind of model, and that is that the parent advocates for their child at school. And we'll guide them. We will visit schools at time and daycares and kind of get people on the same page. But we really focus on the parent taking charge of their family and advocating for their kids. And they do that with pediatricians. They do that with nurses, public health nurses, et cetera. So they have a stronger voice in the community. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a very important skill. It's a tough one to learn I mean, for any of us, you know, because there's a implied authority structure with these other professionals, especially doctors and things. We, All of us are somewhat reluctant to challenge them. And, and for folks that, you know, are living in poverty or have various kinds of challenges and things in their lives and their family lives, that, that can be even more difficult. 
Yeah, and one of the one of the cool things that Penfield did is they they started a Montessori school. You mentioned Montessori, uh, and so they started with K three, K four, and they're adding a year every year. So now we have this this a nice partnership between our clinic and the school, and there you can get everybody on the same page. And so it works. I mean, it works beautifully. Yeah. It's just not always easy to do that in other systems. Yeah, that, well, that's tremendous. Yeah, and I, I recall, you know, we were lucky to be in uh, Montessori schools. I will say, uh, at the preschool level, uh, that people were so experienced, and we we literally felt like they were co-parents. We we would go in if something was going on, we'd go in and talk, and we'd actually come up with an intervention that we'd both try at school and home. Um, not everybody has that luck in their lives, I must say. But, uh, boy, what a, what a tremendous uh, opportunity that was to influence your kid across the whole spectrum of their day. You know, it was just really, really great. So um, so you, you said you were in Columbus. Were you, were you, uh, you were a professor in Columbus at the time? At, where were you working at? Uh, I started out after I, I got my degree in Madison. Uh, I went down for two years at Western Illinois University in their psych department. Um, Got a little tired of the corn and uh, the smallness, <laughs> and so they moved to uh, Columbus, Ohio, at Ohio State University, and taught in the psych department there for a couple of years. And then uh, I guess there was a family pull, because we're originally from Wisconsin. My wife has 11 brothers and sisters, and you know I have a few, and most of them are in the area. And so we wanted to get back here, and it was kind of between Marquette or... UWM, and I always had kind of an affinity for Marquette, and the Catholic and Jesuit tradition was a good match for me. So when an opening occurred in the College of Education, I applied and was fortunate enough to get it. You are recently retired from Marquette, but I, I, I take it you're still keeping your, your fingers in the in the game here. Yeah, yeah. There's a few projects. Uh, where, where we just developed an instrument, one of my doctoral students, for a dissertation to identify trauma symptoms in kids as young as one years of age so we can and it it uh it identifies them through parent report and then we can begin intervention with trauma really early which is really helpful and uh so i'm working on a we have a journal article that was accepted so i'm finishing up some revisions on that we're doing this community training in our evidence-based program that we developed here and and then i also uh Run a run a clinic in Illinois for people with developmental disabilities. So I go down there a few times a month, and it's a large residential institution, and um, and provide psychological services. So I'm not completely retired yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't sound like it. In fact, it said on the sheet uh, what your hobbies are. You said work is your top hobby. <laughs> That's probably accurate. Yeah, still, but I'm going to try to transition out of that soon. So, so what are other things that you might envision yourself doing now that uh, you're anticipating or you're thinking about retirement? I don't, you don't sound like you're retired at all, but what are you thinking about what, what you're going to do? Well, as you said before, you know, this, we've, we developed, geez, this Early Pathways program, which is our program for parents of young kids over 20 or 30 years, I mean, literally, and to let it just sit on a shelf now and not doing something seems to me to kind of be a bad idea. So I do want to spend at least the next few years dissemination. You know, we're getting requests from around the country to come and train folks um, because of the grant we got. We're known federally, so that's that's helped a lot. So I want to do that. Um, 
I still have a couple of doc students that I'll probably finish up on. Um, but after that, um, yeah, I want to I want to enjoy retirement. You know, 40 years in academia is a long time, and so I enjoy fishing, enjoy hunting, and and reading. I read a lot. You know, no psychology stuff. I mean, good stuff like suspense <laughs> novels. <laughs> fun <laughs> yeah, fun reading. So. Yeah, and we enjoy, we have our grandkids now. We have six grandkids. We just had our sixth uh, about a month ago. And they're close by, Chicago or even in this area. So we get to see them a lot. So yeah, that's, that's great. It, it sounds like uh, no matter what happens, your life's going to be quite full. So <laughs> I, I love the idea that you're working on dissemination, though. I mean, that is one of the challenges and the frustrations I think we have as academics sometimes is because you know the 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 coin of our realm is is publishing research in peer-reviewed outlets and and yet those things are not accessible to people who might actually be able to put them to use or you know sometimes they're not even readable really because they're written for a scientific audience as opposed to a, a lay audience or a professional audience and so uh, you know I, I think it's great that you're taking an opportunity to to really go out and go after that uh, it makes your work more meaningful and have a legacy yeah and I think the, the nice thing about it is we've developed a very uh, user-friendly um, training tools we have over a 300 page program manual that's really a one-stop shop they can use that for strategies for assessment tools we have uh, PowerPoint presentations that we do and the nice the cool thing is is that some of my staff former staff at the behavior clinic are doing some of the training so that's really they have the credibility you know I'm in the homes all the time let me tell you what I would do in that situation which is really positive for them and uh, we just need to spread the word now we have a website you know, called Early Pathways, and uh, and I think we're going to get the word out. It's just, you know, it's a challenge to disseminate, but I think we have to do it. And that, is, is that uh, website, is that targeted toward uh, other professionals who would be doing delivery, or is it for parents? Who is it for? It's primarily for professionals, okay. yeah. Yeah, so we, we want to target people who either are working in a similar situation as in, we are in Penfield or uh, administrators, because one of the problems they have is, uh, you know, they train some staff and they get staff turnover and they got to retrain them. And we want to make it accessible and sustainable. That's kind of our two goals. And uh, if we can achieve that, I think it'll also set a model for other programs around the country. You want to put a plug plug for your website? What's what's the where where would people go? Uh, other professionals who might hear this, they want to go and look at your materials or get in contact with you. Where's the, where's the website? Yeah, I appreciate that. It's uh, earlypathways.com. So one word, and uh, you're there. And then the, there's contact information from there. Great. Well, that's that sounds pretty straightforward, earlypathways.com. Okay. Um, you were talking about um, uh, how you would assess a, a trauma uh, in a kid down to the age of one. What are some of the things that you would look for? Uh, obviously, you don't have a conversation with a one-year-old in that way. So, so how do they actually identify that? It's actually um, it's a it's a it's a two-part thing, Dan. Um, we start out with uh, looking whether or not kids have experienced any potentially traumatic events, and we're talking about things like uh, dad's in jail, uh, dad's gone, uh, they witnessed domestic violence. Maybe they were in the hospital and got real scared. Um, it can be, there's a, there's a list of 25 or 30 things we ask. We started asking parents in the past, has your child ever been traumatized? They'd say no. And we'd go, oh, okay, then we'll move on. 
But when we started asking specific questions about these events that might trigger trauma, then we got, oh, yeah, he said that. Yeah, he said that. In fact, our, our average child has experienced four or five traumatic events, and some over a long period of time, uh, and sometimes the perpetrator is still around, so it gets complex. But once we've identified um, that the kid has experienced, then we start looking for symptoms of it. Some kids, you know, roll with the punches and don't seem to be bothered by it, but other kids you'll get, you'll get inconsolable crying. You'll get uh, nightmares. You'll get um, regression, you know, where they'll start to go back and start having wedding incidents. Uh, it's, it's surprising. It's hard to believe it. I've seen three-year-olds uh, stare off into space. We call that disassociation, where they just can't handle it anymore, and so they shut down. And uh, those are scary things. You know, when you see in a three-year-old that where you're trying to get their attention and, and, and they're just gone right now, so we got to get them back and get them going again. But a lot of the trauma symptoms we see in young children are kind of unique. You know, it might look like a behavior problem to a normal parent, but underneath that, something occurred that triggered that kid. And uh, that's a much more complex treatment than just dealing with a behavior problem. And what you're saying, Bob, is it just reminds me of how complex even a really young kid's life is and and their tools for expressing that talking about it and processing it are are so limited compared to to older people so it's a, it's a really powerful moment yeah you know you're exactly right and i think that's the reason that a lot of uh providers haven't picked up on this yet because they don't have the background or training to know what to do in these situations they see a behavior problem they say oh they're going to grow out of it i mean the classic you know pediatrician's answer to a parent problem is just wait a year and it'll go away well these don't go away they get worse actually um and it gets, it gets complex unraveling. Is it just a simple behavior issue that we're dealing with here and can get that taken care of in a matter of weeks? Or are we talking about um, a fairly significant underlying trauma? And that's going to take a lot longer. It's kind of, I, I tell professionals, I say, you can, behavior problems um, take time to develop over time, but we can get rid of them quicker. Whereas trauma can happen very quickly and takes longer to resolve. And you have to work very carefully with the parents because, as you said, little kids can't process things. So you got to be, there's a lot of judgment involved in how you push a kid to re-experience the trauma, which is one of the, one of the treatment strategies. And that may be way down the road, and some kids may never want to experience that negative event again. But it can be, it can be a man, it can be a, a smell, it can be a sight. And it just triggers them, and all of a sudden they're crying and just out of control. You mentioned, Bob, that you got started on this thinking about yourself as a parent. And so after all these years of doing this work now, uh, what advice would you give to parents in general and and maybe to to your younger self about how to come at being a parent and and what, 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 what would be the number one piece of advice that you might give? Yeah, you know, we actually, when we started, we started doing parenting classes. That's where this whole thing started in the community. And then it evolved into more of a, a mental health treatment program because we felt that was where the need was the greatest. But when we were teaching just regular parents, you know, middle class, lower middle, whatever, parents with young kids, we always told them that, that there were really, uh, the first thing was make sure you have your act together as a parent, you know, kind of. Don't let your kids see you angry or losing it too often. Kind of, kind of stop and think about what's going on here. 
make sure you understand what the kid is capable of. Just because they're four and are talking doesn't mean they're little adults all of a sudden. They still aren't quite there yet. So do some reading on what four-year-olds can do. And then we push a lot of uh, really positive stuff. I mean, not over-the-top stuff, but being very nurturing and being very positive. And then finally, don't be afraid to set limits. You know, you got it when the kid is going off on their little brother or sister they may need to be separated for a while, and don't be afraid to do that. You know, one of the things parents always worry about that aren't with their kids is that, well, my kid's not going to love me, or they're going to feel bad. And, and little kids are so forgetting, giving. They, they forget the next day that, <laughs> that they were in timeout the day before or were pretty right. mad at their parents. Yeah. So it's, it's fairly simple stuff, but um, it's just amazing how parents can uh, turn things around. I talked to my daughter once. And she was having trouble getting her child to go to bed for a nap. And so she called me and said, Dad, I did everything you asked me to do. You know, I, I put her to bed. She was tired, you know. She was full. And and I said, well, it sounds right. I said, well, where are you right now? She said, well, I'm in the room with her. I said, well, then get out. <laughs> and she got out, and that took care of it. <laughs> so some little advice here or there, but I would recommend parents do some reading. You know, there's parenting classes all over the place, you know. And just use good judgment. Yeah. I'm reminded of another uh, moment uh, in in a kid's life that's probably traumatic in various ways, and it's one that interferes with parenting a great deal. And that's when the parents split up. And so, when when a divorce occurs, or even if it's not a, a, a marital relationship, but the parents separate in some way, that has a big impact on the kids and the parenting environment. Is that something that you spent time dealing with? Yeah, uh, quite often we end up uh, giving parents advice on how to handle visitations and things like that. And I actually have a have a doctoral student who's now specialized in meeting with parents who are pretty sure they're going to be splitting up. Um, and they meet uh, for several sessions to determine what's best for the child and what can each do. And I think we need more of those kind of interventions. That's kind of a specialization right now, but I think it's going to grow. It's a, it's a mediation kind of thing, and it's kind of figuring things out because you're still a family from the kid's perspective. But that separation can be pretty uh, can be pretty traumatic, but it's not handled well. Uh, so, Bob, this um, partnership that you've had with Penfield's unique in many ways, and we we talk a lot at Marquette about forging partnerships with. Uh, other entities out in our community. It sounds like this is one that's been very successful and been been a real model in various ways. Can you talk a little bit about how that's been important in developing this work and the the effectiveness of it? Sure. Uh, and I should start by saying before we developed this relationship, we had been doing parenting classes in a number of nonprofits around town. And, you know, some were great and some were not as, as well organized. Um, and so I think it was about 15 years ago I decided, let's, let's put all our eggs in one basket. Let's go to one, let's find one really good nonprofit. And Penfield's been around for 50 years. Uh, and I, I got to train their staff a little bit, got to know some of their administrators. And, and, and the nice thing was, too, I, I, I want to make sure I mention this, Marquette has been extremely supportive, you know, with its social justice mission. Our dean has been supportive of our work, so it's not like I've ever had to to, to fight internal battles to move forward. It's like go go go, and um, and so we we met with them, um, and it was a trial. We met with their board, and and they said, well, let's see how it goes for a year. And the first year it didn't go well because we were having parents come in to see us at Penfield, and 
it was just they had too many barriers, transportation, number of kids, whatever. They just couldn't get there reliably. So we switched the second year and went into the homes, and that made all the difference. And and what started to happen is as we developed our research program, we started generating grant dollars, and um, and we developed training programs. And so other disciplines at Penfield were starting to say, whoa, what's going on with the behavior clinic? And so it had a nice effect on other disciplines as well. A speech therapist might come, hey, I have this kid I can't, I can't get control of. And we'd go fix up the kid for a while, and then they could do their speech therapy. So I think the research brought, brought attention not only to Marquette, obviously, but to Penfield. You know, they, you know, getting these major dollars through foundations and through the federal government and state government, um, it was just a win-win. And, uh, and I'm just happy that we were able to, when I retired, find a replacement for me who's now not only taken over what I was doing, but has added the school to his plate so that um, I, think it's, I think its future is going to be really bright and long-term. Uh, that's just terrific. I love hearing that. And well, you've said in many ways throughout this that, that the notion of sustainability in the programs, in the, uh, in the behaviors of the parents is just so important. And, and I, I, I just uh, think it's something we always need to be thinking about in, this, in the work that we do. Um, we're we're going to be here doing our work for a while, but at some point we're not. And we, we need to make sure that it has a life that lives past us. So I, I, I congratulate you for making that a central part of how you've come at this really great yeah i think to me it was important that um that my leaving didn't disrupt things because we had a staff now we had grown from we started out with four graduate students and myself and now we have nine full-time counselors many of who graduated from marquette's master's program and they get their license with us and and they stay with us so i had an obligation to them, to the clinic, to the families, and to the students that, that we didn't just let this thing die when I left. And so bringing Alan Burkhardt on a year or two in advance of my leaving made the transition very smooth, and and they're off to the races again. So And he's bringing some new creativity, which I think is a freshness that was needed at this point. Well, I am so glad that you're out there doing something with this, uh, Bob. It sounds like you've had an incredible career of developing really thoughtful strategies about how to come at this and I, I really uh I really admire the work you're doing and I'm I'm just so pleased to hear the work that you're doing to get it out there and get it into the the world of people's lives and what 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 a difference you've made one of our mottos here at Marquette is be the difference and boy you really have and I just I want to I want to thank you for that and congratulate you and and you know I, I know the world is grateful for the things that you have, have given and uh, we're, we're so proud to have faculty like you at Marquette it means so much to us so, yeah Excellent. All right. Good. Great. That's going to be a good one, Bob.